Welcome to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. We speak with writers, thinkers, and newsmakers on the controversial issues of human life and human thriving that impact our daily lives. We are exceptional as creatures in the cosmos, as equal members of the human family, and as ethical beings. Humanize explores some of the fundamental questions. How do we thrive? How do we live well and care for what we've inherited? How do we act responsibly with one another and in the wider world? And how do we conserve the good things of this life for the future? We matter. Our actions matter. Let's get into it. I'm Wesley J. Smith, and this is Humanize. said that we live in the century of biotechnology. That prediction proved true early on. In August 2001, biotech exploded into the public consciousness when President George W. Bush issued modest federal funding restrictions on embryonic stem cell research. Talk about a moral panic. Angry opponents in the press accused Bush of being anti-science and putting his religious beliefs above the health needs of suffering patients. Scientists promised repeatedly that embryonic stem cells would allow people to leave their wheelchairs, treat Parkinson's disease, cure diabetes, and perhaps even offer hope for people with dementia. Now, 20 years later, we don't hear much about embryonic stem cells anymore. But even more radical and powerful biotechnologies are being developed at breakneck pace. But unlike during the Bush years, there is very little media coverage and debate about how, if at all, to regulate these powerful biological products. That's where David A. Prentice comes in. For the last 20 years, he has been one of the world's premier scientists and public advocates, arguing for both safe and ethical biotechnology. Dr. Prentice is vice president and research director for the Charlotte Lozier Institute and an adjunct professor of molecular genetics at the John Paul II Institute, the Catholic University of America. He was a founding advisory board member for the Midwest Stem Cell Therapy Center in Kansas. In 2020, he was appointed by the Secretary of Health and Human Services to the Federal Human Fetal Tissue Ethics Advisory Board. Dr. Prentice has over 40 years' experience as a scientific researcher and professor. He is an internationally recognized expert on stem cell research, cell biology, and bioethics and has provided scientific lectures and policy briefings in 40 states and 21 countries, including testimony before the United States Congress and numerous state legislatures. He received the 2007 Walter C. Randall Award in Biomedical Ethics from the American Physiology Society given for promoting the honor and integrity of biomedical science through example and mentoring in the classroom and laboratory. He is also my brother in advocacy and a very good friend. David, welcome to Humanize. Thanks, Wesley. It's great to be with you. Good to see you. Good to talk to you. Uh, You know, you were, I know a little bit about your history. You were an award-winning biology professor when the embryonic stem cell controversy broke in 2001, and you uh, decided that you wanted to engage that issue. What was it about embryonic stem cells that made you decide to become a public advocate? You know, Wesley, it's interesting. When this first came up, I was asked by a U.S. senator to analyze not just the science, but the legislation that was being proposed around that time regarding stem cell research, embryonic as well as adult. And I started to read through the scientific papers going, all of these claims that were being made about embryonic stem cells, there was no science to support it. In the meantime, adult stem cells, bone marrow transplants, umbilical cord blood stem cell transplants, were treating patients for dozens of different diseases at that point in time. And you you were actually a researcher in adult stem cells, weren't you? We were doing some experiments in my lab with adult stem cells. I was actually the experimental animal 
My students enjoyed playing Bleed the Professor <laughs> to get some of my blood stem cells and do experiments in the lab. But uh, I guess the, the thing that really triggered me was seeing all of these false claims about embryonic stem cells, as well as cloning, which we you know, were brothers in testifying against. We'll talk about that. Total ignorance, or at least a blackout, if you will, on what was actually taking place helping patients with adult stem cells. So I started to shoot my mouth off in terms of, well, here are the real scientific facts. And you took a sabbatical for a year, as I recall, to begin to discuss this around the country, right? I had a sabbatical. I did a little bit of laboratory research, a typical prof professorial sabbatical at that point. And then I traveled the country and traveled the world, frankly, talking about the scientific facts about embryonic versus adult stem cells, as well as trying to point out the ethics, something that was pretty much overlooked in all of the debates that you have to destroy a young human being, a human embryo to get those embryonic stem cells where you don't have to harm anybody to get the adult stem cells. We're, we're going to get into that and then some of these other biotechnologies that are newer. But uh, what was the reaction of your university? You had, as That's when you and I met was about that time. And uh, you were really getting a lot of media attention. You were on television shows. You were, as you said, traveling the world. You were briefing uh, uh, legislators. And what was, what was the reaction? You'd think that the, your university would be thrilled, uh, but they weren't, were they? Well, the PR department was thrilled. Oh, that's good. The university's name was out there. But my chairman and my dean and a number of my scientific colleagues were not thrilled because, as they put it, I was talking down science. I was against science, despite the fact that everything I said was published scientific evidence. They didn't like the fact that I was talking about the ethics as well as the science. And uh, they tried in a number of ways to, to get me to be quiet on that issue. Now that's the, they were pushing the wrong guy, I think. What happened was I had been teaching, you know, an advanced course or a graduate course in a lab uh, each semester before that when I came back from the sabbatical because I'd been very vocal about not just science, but ethical science, which they didn't like. I was given six courses my first semester back to teach. And they were undergrad courses. Big undergraduate sections, which just gave me another large audience to talk to about science and ethics and adult stem cells. So it, it was a lot of fun, actually. It's very interesting. This is uh, what happened to you uh, because they really did try to force you out uh, is an early example of what we now call cancel culture. And it wasn't because anything you said was erroneous. I, I don't recall you ever being rebutted in terms of the science you presented and of course, in terms of ethics, that's a subjective issue and people have differing opinions, but certainly your ethical premises uh, were within the mainstream of millions of people. Um, but they couldn't handle that you weren't on the quote, what, what would now be called the woke or politically correct side. And so eventually you said, fine, I'm out of here. And you moved to Washington, D.C. That's right. I, I received a lot of grief because I wasn't on the scientific party line of all science is good. And I was bringing up this little ethical problem. And I was getting lots of questions from many different groups who did want to hear the facts about science as well as ethics. Right. And uh, I finally retired, if you will, from academia. Right and moved to Washington, D.C., uh, still doing basically the same thing, explaining science, but now the class I was speaking to were policymakers. And now you're with the Charlotte Lozier Institute. Uh, what is the Charlotte Lozier Institute, and what do you do for them? Well, I think our, our motto might explain it best, and it's science and statistics for life. We're basically a bunch of geeks who tried to talk about the science of life from the very beginning on. We do focus largely on uh, early life, uh, 
from the initial formation of the embryo on through gestation and so on. We have uh, somewhere around 70 scholars who participate, uh, elite scientists, physicians, legal scholars, and so on. Uh, we try and engage with the scientific facts, again, the medical facts, as well as the ethics regarding early life. Uh, you know, one of the things that's uh, in the news radar right now is the Dobbs case about gestational age and so on and abortion. It will come up before the Supreme Court soon. So we've been trying to just speak science into all of these various issues, ones we've already talked about and will be talking about here on this interview as well. This issue of anti-science is something that gets in my craw, to be honest with you. The idea that science is supposed to be homogenous and only have one approach in terms of hypotheses, and also that when you bring up ethical issues, that that is somehow anti-science. That is what you have been facing for 20, 20 plus years in these issues. But let's talk about the biology. We're not talking about ethics right here. The biology of, of when a human being, a human organism, if you will, comes into existence. You hear all the time, well, it could be when there's implantation, or it could be when the child is born, or it could be uh, we don't know. But actually, biology itself understands that very well, doesn't it? We're not talking about the moral status of any human life, but we're talking about the existence of a human life. When biologically, as a biologist, does human life start? And you're right, biology speaks very clearly and has for decades spoken clearly to this. And, and the focus here is on the science. When does that organism begin? Well, the natural way it does is at fertilization, when that egg and sperm gets together. The biological stages have been accepted as fact in science since the 1940s, you'll hear some people talk about Carnegie stages. These are simply ways to look at different ages of human embryos, human beings, as that organism grows and matures. So the organism begins as a one-cell zygote. And am I right about the science that when, when I was a one-cell zygote, I was the same organism that I am now as I speak to you, and you, when you were a one-cell zygote, were the same organism as you are now when you speak to me. We're just at different stages of development. That's right. Uh, we call that a zygote, the single-celled embryo. We call the, the early stages, the first few weeks, an embryo. We call the later stages of gestation a fetus, and then we're an infant and then we're a child, and then there, we're a teenager, and then some of us get, become very mature. <laughs> but uh, it's just different stages of life, of the same life. Right. We've actually just put up a, a unique first-time website uh, called Voyage of Life. You can get to it at voyageoflife.com, where we go through that and provide all of the scientific evidence about that. And I'd encourage your listeners to visit that and, and learn the real facts. Another point that you and I, when we were uh, sometimes traveling together to testify on the embryonic stem cell issue, um, you'd hear scientists, I mean, I heard them lie repeatedly, but you'd hear a scientist say, well, this isn't an embryo, it's a blastocyst. And, and that sound you heard was my head exploding because a blastocyst is an embryo. Am I right? That's right. It's just a designation for a specific age of embryo. Or you'd hear them say it's a, it's a gastrula or it's you know, a morula. All these are simply the very detailed scientific terms for that particular stage or age of development. But it was all an embryo. And, and what you're discussing was quite true, though. You'd have people try to use a scientific term or to redefine a scientific term. Uh, we heard very often the term pre-embryo, which really meant a pre-implantation stage because 
Under normal circumstances, at fertilization, that occurs in the fallopian tubes. And then the embryo starts to grow and divide and works its way into the uterine cavity. And after about seven days of life, now has formed so that it can implant into the uterine wall. But we had a number of supposed scientists trying to claim that it wasn't even an embryo. It wasn't even an organism totally bogus because the scientific facts speak to that being simply a young human embryo. And if anything, in my view, is anti-science, it is misstating the facts for an ideological or a policy purpose. Because you can say, yes, this is an early embryo, but I don't think that the early embryo has a moral status because A, B, C, D. That's, that would be an honest argument. But so often we see today in biotechnology dishonest arguments by the people who are claiming the mantle of pro-science. Exactly. Or trying to redefine what that means. But that's a separate argument to say, I don't want to give that particular entity full moral value. Right. Because then I can't use that entity in the way that I want to. (laughs) Right. Yeah. At least recognize the truth of the biology. If you've got something that's worthwhile to debate in your point, then bring it up, but at least do it based on the facts. All right. So David Prentice is now, you know, moved to Washington full-time. Dr. David Prentice is a full-time advocate on these issues, traveling literally the world, giving lectures and, and so forth. What was, uh, we, we're not going to relitigate the embryonic stem cell fight, but what was your argument against using embryos in stem cell research? Well, I think there were really two basic points. Number one was the ethical argument, because to get embryonic stem cells, you have to destroy, literally suck out some cells from from a young human embryo. So, This deals with the ethical aspects of that type of research. It begins with destroying a human life. But the other aspect were all the false claims that were made. Uh, I had one U.S. senator say, you know, embryonic stem cells have the potential to cure all known maladies. And after I stopped laughing, I had to ask, well, what does that mean in terms of dandruff or or bad breath and so on. But the bottom line being, there was no evidence that that could actually take place, that they could tame those cells. While in the meantime, there was an ethical alternative already in existence that should have been fully supported. Adult stem cells, meaning bone marrow or umbilical cord blood stem cells. These were already helping patients, even saving lives, but they were being pushed to the side for the latest scientific fad. And they were being damned with faint praise is what was happening. And it's very interesting. The idea behind uh, embryonic stem cell uh, research was regenerative medicine. That is that uh, they would uh, be able to take these embryonic stem cells, which are capable of becoming any tissue in the body, and somehow develop these tissues, um, the ones you want. For example, if you wanted to uh, replace heart cells, you could just create these heart cells in the dish or or neurons from the brain in the dish and then put those in the body and then the body would use those to heal. That's a general statement of how it was supposed to work. And uh, you kept saying, well, wait a second, there's a problem here. One had to do with tumors, which I'd like you to explain. And the other is that you could take adult stem cells and actually not have the tumor issue and obtain the same regenerative benefit in many cases. So give us a little bit of discussion on that. Ethics aside, the practical aspects of embryonic stem cells don't lend themselves to this type of regenerative medicine. What's their character at that point in your life? They grow very fast and they start to make all the various tissues at once. And in fact, if you take the cells and put them into a dish and just let them do their thing, they will form a little cluster that contains various types of cells. 
In fact, one of the tests that they would always do to see if embryonic stem cells were, quote, pluripotent, had the capacity to form all these various cell types, inject them into a mouse who's had its immune system disconnected, and you get a teratoma. You get a tumor that contains little bits of all types of cells, liver, brain, and so on. Well, you have to be able to tame these cells if you're going to be able to get them to truly regenerate tissue. And experiment after experiment with mice and rats and so on, all they did was keep forming tumors in the animals. They weren't repairing tissue at all. Whereas with the adult stem cells, they weren't all pluripotent. They didn't have this one-size-fits-all capacity, perhaps, but they didn't form the tumors. You could use them to faithfully regenerate diseased or damaged tissue. For example, as I recall, you can use fat stem cells to create heart tissue, correct? That's right. It, it was kind of interesting in some of the early days, people would be doing experiments, including in my lab, and you would take some of these blood stem cells, let's say, and you could get them to form nervous tissue, neurons, and so on. You could get bone marrow to form heart, or as you say, even fat uh, stem cells from fat. It's not the fat cells themselves. They're right. stem cells that are hiding there in your fat. One of my favorite sources, in fact, because I'd like to be a donor. <laughs> but you could take those cells and they could form liver. They could form heart. They could form skeletal muscle. They could do this little trick where they would change their characteristic. They were flexible in their ability to turn into the type of tissue that you needed to repair or they could also act as generals to come in and tell the stem cells they're in that tissue to start to repair and replace the tissue. There are lots of different ways that they were working, but the real fact that was important and often overlooked is they were working. They were helping not just mice and rats in the lab, but human beings, patients with lots of different conditions, and they were recovering. And so let's fast forward for 20 years and then move on to some other issues. Which of the, the types of stem cells have actually been able to go into the clinical setting, embryonic or adult? Only adult. Are there any embryonic stem cell treatments really happening in the clinical setting today? There are still none after over 20 years. They keep trying, but I have yet to see a peer-reviewed published scientific paper touting that this patient was cured by embryonic stem cells. The score is still zero on that side of the ledger. And for adult stem cells, what are some of the uh, maladies that, you know, we won't say cure, but can be treated? Right. And, and I think it's important that we talk about not all of these are cures. Not all of these are available at your local clinic yet. Many are still under development. Uh, start with what people normally think about for bone marrow transplants, various types of cancers and leukemias. There are, frankly, now dozens of different types of cancers that are being treated, or at least they're trying to treat them in clinical trials and seeing some success with adult stem cells. But go beyond that. What we're seeing are things like stroke, Stroke patients, again, I'm not talking about lab experiments with rats and mice. Patients being successfully treated with adult stem cells for stroke, juvenile diabetes, multiple sclerosis, liver damage, heart damage. Uh, we actually put up a website called stemcellresearchfacts.org where we've tried to get the patients to tell the story. Instead of me giving the dry scientific facts, let the patients tell the story themselves. And one of my favorite, more recent one, is a, a little girl who was diagnosed at birth with what's called Crabbe's syndrome. It's a neurological problem. It's actually a genetic problem. So you can't use your own cells and give them back to yourself to try and repair. You have to get donor because it's genetic. This is a severe neurological disease, and usually these little kids don't live more than two years. 
when we first did the uh, the video of her story, little Reagan was two and a half years old. And my understanding is recently she's gone to school. Oh, my. Others, sickle cell anemia. In fact, the medical literature, I was a little surprised at this, actually used that C word, that adult stem cell transplants were the only curative treatment for sickle cell anemia. And the list keeps getting bigger and bigger. We used to try and keep track of all the different diseases and conditions. It's too hard to follow all the scientific literature now. What we have seen are numbers of patients. It's over 2 million people around the globe now treated with adult stem cells. Versus um, very few with embryonic, and those were in clinical trials for things like mac macular degeneration, as I recall, and it just hasn't worked out. And I think the lesson here uh, is that, you know, when people start screaming that, an, that a heterodox hypothesis is anti-science, that itself is anti-science because in the end, the, the results came from the heterodox view, which was the one you were promoting. And that's why science cannot just go by consensus. It has to have a robust form of debate in order to, to, to have the scientific method move forward, right? That's right. And science really doesn't proceed by consensus. That's how things get done at the UN, and we've seen how well things work there. <laughs> yes. Science works by discovery, by debate, by doing these kinds of experiments and looking at the evidence, the published scientific evidence, not what we hope might turn out to be the case, but what the actual scientific facts are. And we've also uh, found uh, another source of pluripotent stem cells, which are really good for in terms of drug testing and this kind of thing, through ethical means. And this is another way, in my opinion, that the Bush policy really was masterful, and that is the induced pluripotent stem cell. Explain how that came into being, and it did win the developer won a Nobel Prize for it, and, and what, what some of the things that are being done ethically with these induced pluripotent stem cells. There's no ethical contention with these. That's right. And, and when the induced pluripotent stem cells, basically you take a cell, any cell, skin cell, even from a hair follicle, and you add some factors that change its gene expression. Dr. Shinyin Yamanaka from Japan, who, as you said, won the 2012 Nobel Prize for coming up with this idea, started with four little factors that he added. And it was like reprogramming a computer so that instead of running the skin cell program, now the cell runs what looks like the embryonic stem cell program, only there were no embryos involved. There was no destruction of any young human life. Instead, you just reprogram this cell so it looks and acts like an embryonic stem cell. Those have actually moved into the clinic as well. There are a couple of clinical trials going on for macular degeneration and for a couple of other conditions that they're testing. Their real utility, though, seems to be as great models. You mentioned drug discovery. They found that you can take one of the, you can take a cell from virtually anybody, including those with certain diseases. You can put it in the dish, make these iPS cells from it, and it faithfully retains what you might call the disease program. So you can watch the disease in a dish, and then you can come up with ways to try and treat it. It might be drug treatments. It might be a gene editing type of treatment or something. But you can do all of these things in the dish, ethical sources of cells. You can model the disease. You can come up with potential treatments. Some of the latest things that are fascinating is they are making what are called organoids, like a miniature organ, a kidney, a heart, a liver, even little cerebral organoids that model early brain development. They can watch normal development. They can see how abnormal development might take off here. And in fact, that's how they actually discovered how the Zika virus 
was affecting brain development in these little kids that had the smaller heads and brains, microcephaly, was using organoids, but derived from these iPS cells, ethically induced. So they can steady that. Eventually, some of these probably will be used for transplant as well to replace failing livers and kidneys and so on. The idea would be that, let's say I needed a kidney, you could take my skin cell and actually build a new kidney out of my skin cell by turning it into an induced pluripotent stem cell, then turning it into kidney tissue and build these organs. And maybe eventually, and of course, we're talking years from now, have that as you could actually recreate your own organ. Yeah. And, And it would be yours because we would start with your tissue, your cells, your DNA, but grow your own out in the dish, in the lab, if you will, for replacement. And I think this demonstrates that people who are promoting ethical science often actually help the just the basic science itself move forward at a faster pace. Good ethics and good science are actually very compatible. They travel together. They certainly do. And in fact, what we've seen is uh, a number of those people I debated uh, favoring embryonic stem cells early on, even doing embryonic stem cell research in their labs, have switched their labs. And they now do this induced pluripotent stem cell research in their labs. And without a blush, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. So so let's contrast that with uh, somatic cell nuclear transfer, which is better known as human cloning, which is a, a different kettle of ethical fish. Tell us about uh, somatic cell nuclear transfer and, and why you think that's a really morally problematic approach to uh, biotechnology and uh, not only regenerative medicine, but also reproductive uh, technologies for having babies. So the term describes the process. Somatic cell, that's just a normal, normal body cell. Nuclear transfer, you transfer the nucleus, the genome of that normal cell into an egg cell that has had its chromosomes removed. What do you get? You get an embryo a single-celled embryo. It's not made the old-fashioned way like we've been discussing with egg and sperm. This is how Dolly the clone sheep was made, though, and all the clone cats and rats and cows and so on we keep hearing about on and on. Well, early on with the embryonic stem cell debate, one of the other practical problems besides tumors they faced is immune rejection. If you're going to transplant embryonic stem cells into me, I'm not related to that little embryo that you destroyed to get her cells. So I'm going to reject it. So you have to use lots of immune suppression drugs. Well, the bright idea they had was, let's just clone you. We'll take your clone. But of course, we won't let him grow up and live. We'll go ahead and destroy that clone while he's still an embryo. Take those cells because that's your DNA. And magically, we'll be able to then replace all of your tissues using the cloned embryo cells, and it should match. Although when they did the experiments, that really didn't turn out at all. But the the real problem here became that you were specifically creating embryos in the lab solely for the purpose of destroying them, of harvesting them uh, for their parts, for their cells. And I recall that, uh, there was and perhaps still is a supposed distinction made between what was called reproductive cloning and therapeutic cloning. And that would have me tear my hair out because the cloning is what you just described. They were talking about the uses of the embryo once it came into existence. So it really wasn't cloning one way or the other. There's one cloning. And once cloning is completed, then it's just what do you do with this life that you have created almost as a matter of manufacture. Exactly. The so-called reproductive cloning was you were going to take that cloned embryo and put him into a womb and gestate to birth. And of course, we heard, oh, no, we don't want to do that. We don't want born clones. We're just going to do therapeutic cloning. Now, it sounds very nice when you say it that way. But what you're planning to do is take that cloned embryo and destroy him to get those cells for experiments in the lab. It's obviously not therapeutic for the clone. And again, there are no therapies from therapeutic cloning. 
But they have actually been able to create human cloned embryos, haven't they? They have. Uh, we kept hearing stories, but without any real proof for years. In fact, I think in 2001 was one of the first stories that came out. But only in the last few years did a researcher in Oregon actually provide proof that he had created cloned human embryos healthy enough to get them to grow about seven days in the lab. And then, of course, they were destroyed for their cells. One of the problems that they kept facing was having enough human eggs because it's a very inefficient process. Estimates of from 10 to 100 human eggs to get one so-so looking human embryo as a clone that you hoped could grow and be used for his cells later on. And they actually found that there were only certain genetic types of women and their genetic types of eggs that could work. It turns out that you probably could never make a clone for every human being, even if the technique could work, that you could make the clone, get the cells, and finally turn them into something you could use. It's kind of a horrific process anyway, and you're talking about now exploiting women for their eggs, creating life in the lab only for destruction. And uh, our friend Jennifer Lull, uh, uh, who has been on Humanized previously, uh, has been really righteous in warning that exploiting women for their eggs can actually be very deleterious to their health. And if uh, any listeners are interested in that, I suggest you uh, go back and listen to the Jennifer Lull interview because she really lays it out very clearly. There's something in uh, supposedly ethics of all of this research called the 14-day rule. And the uh, 14-day rule basically said that, oh, well, we're going to do all of this work, but don't worry. We're not going to let these embryos develop past a time where they would have neural cells or, or uh, nerve cells where there could possibly be any type of sentience and therefore it'll be ethical. And, and uh, so we'll stop at 14 days. And you and I were saying they don't mean it. They're only agreeing to stop at 14 days because they can't at this point when we were having these discussions go beyond that. Well, now they have done the research because of the 14-day rule that lets them go beyond it. And David, what are they now saying? Now they say, let the good times roll. They, in fact, didn't put any limit in terms of their recommendations. And By, the, by who is they? I, yeah, I want to back up a step and, and say who. There's a, a group called the International Society for Stem Cell Research. It was formed back in the early 2000s to promote stem cell research, primarily embryonic. But they also have then taken it upon themselves to write guidelines for the researchers who want to do this type of research. Now, to them, ethics simply means scientifically it's a good thing for us to do. There's no sort of human ethic involved here. And so, yeah, you want to destroy embryos, go ahead and do it. You want to make cloned human embryos and destroy them for cells, go ahead and do it. But as you mentioned, this 14-day limit was put in back when no one could get even close to 14 days to grow an embryo in the lab. But in the last couple of years, people have said, yeah, it looks like I could go beyond. And I stopped. It's, it's a law in the UK and some countries it's a strong suggestion in the U.S., but they at least abided by that principle. But then the International Society for Stem Cell Research decided just in at the end of May 2021 that we need new recommendations. Since we can now go beyond 14 days, sky's the limit. Right. They want no limits. Their phrase was no limit. Basically, their phrase was as long as it is scientifically justifiable. Which could be 
almost anything to say, well, maybe we'll be able to, as they argued in the embryonic stem cell debate, this will cure Parkinson's. Therefore, it's scientifically justifiable. And they've actually done away with what you call humanity ethics or human ethics that deal with whether or not when you're dealing with unborn life, there is any kind of moral consequence to what we do with these entities. And it strikes me this could lead very easily, especially if we get to the place where you can have an artificial gestation chamber, to doing live experiments on fetuses, which are much more advanced than embryos. Have you? It's called fetal farming. What are your thoughts about that? Well, there's already been some success at that. There's a researcher in Israel who, in the spring of 2021, reported that he could grow mice in some of these gestational containers, artificial containers, up to about midway through gestation for a mouse, at a point where you can see their beating hearts and you can start to see the whole form and and the organs are formed and so on. And the researcher who did this with mice said, I'm looking forward to the day when I can do this with human embryos, grow them for 40 days or even longer at point where you've got a beating heart and all the organs formed and so on. It's something they have wanted to do for a long time. The technologies are now converging. So we're going to wave aside any limits on experiments. And we're now starting to make these artificial gestational containers artificial wombs, fetus farming. Uh, Your listeners might go back and read uh, Brave New World, but uh, it was science fiction then. It's not so much science fiction anymore. It's it's interesting. You could certainly, and the justification scientifically, again, without getting into ethics, for that work could very easily be propounded. A, you could learn a lot about gestational development. B, you could end up with tissues that would be very efficacious in terms of uh, treating people with uh, regenerative medicine. In fact, it's my understanding that fetal stem cells are actually better than embryonic stem cells in that regard for the same reason adult stem cells are. Um, uh, You can uh, talk about uh, perhaps um, uh, being uh, in terms of uh, enhancements uh, and so forth and our utilitarian lifestyle. Maybe somebody doesn't want to gestate a child, but this way we can ha- they can have a child without having to actually be pregnant. But it, it, it totally does away with the idea of, well, wait a second, this is a nascent developing human being. And is that how we're going to treat human beings? And if we can treat, let's say, a human being in, in gestation because they're not conscious in this way, can we also treat somebody like, let's say, Terry Schiavo? in that same instrumental manner. And it opens up a whole can of unethical issues or certainly ethical debates that have to be having, but we're not having those debates. And just as an example, I know Charlotte Lozier has been involved in this, the idea of using fetus parts in medical research at some of our universities sometimes is supplied by parent Planned Parenthood. What is that all about? And, and what are the arguments being made to justify such behavior? The usual argument is that it's the only opportunity to do this type of research. It's the only type of cell or tissue that they can use. The, the arguments are specious. Uh, there are ample opportunities, ample alternatives many of them much better than fetal tissue or even fetal cells, adult stem cells and the induced pluripotent stem cells and the organoids. And and the list kind of goes on and on and on. But now let's say you could grow these in the lab and we're we're not going to consider those human. It's simply a redefinition. But we grow until we've got fetal hearts, fetal livers and so on. Organ transplantation, I think, is one of the chief justifications they're using, but just studying normal and abnormal development, being able to do some more interesting experiments. Animal-human chimeras are one example. And in point of fact, this researcher in Israel that did the mouse embryos halfway through gestation did some experiments where he also added some human cells to make mouse human chimeras. 
what is a chimera? Chimera is where you're mixing the DNA or the cells and tissues of two different organisms. And usually we think about it in terms of two different species or more, but usually it's two. It comes originally from the Greek, the, the chimera that was part goat and part snake and part lion. Well, now they're talking about growing organs for transplant, but doing them with a human-animal mixture where you would put human cells into the early animal embryo, sheep, maybe a pig, and then gestate that up to the point that you would have fully formed organs. It also gets away from uh, this little problem. Well, we're not destroying a human embryo. We're making something else that we won't consider to be human, even partially human, other than the part that we want, the organ that we want to transplant. This is something that I think requires a lot of ethical thought. You and I may have a difference of opinion on this. It seems to me that if you put a little bit of human, uh, let's say, DNA into a pig and you can use a pig kidney to save a human life, that's not unethical because you haven't actually changed the nature of the pig substantially at all and you're saving a human life. On the other hand, if you turn it into a pig, pig man, <laughs> to, for one, using uh, Joseph Bottom, my friend Joseph Bottom's term, uh, where you've actually elevated, say, the pig's consciousness or you've, you've transformed the pig into to, uh, an, an organism that would actually be part, express its, its life in a human way, then you have a problem. And what strikes me is we have to have a very deep conversation about this because we don't want to lose the benefits of chimeric research without also unleashing the horrors do you agree with me that that conversation needs to be held and that there are some methods of that research that could be beneficial? And then how do we get that conversation to be had? What do you think needs to be done so that we can have the time to actually engage it? We, we definitely need that conversation, and we certainly have not had it. And, and I should probably clarify, when I'm talking about chimeras and this mixture, I agree that there are some that there are no ethical problems. So being able to grow a human heart or liver or kidney in a pig and being able to then take that and transplant that into a human, I think would be ethical. Where we run into problems is where you start to blur species boundaries. And I think in terms of these types of chimeras, the ones that are, we'll just say they are ethically questionable, would be the ones where especially you're perhaps, as you said, elevating that animal to some sort of human or human characteristics. And the ones people usually focus on, the pig or the sheep with a human brain. So cognition, that idea of self-awareness and so on, the idea of the reproductive cells, growing human eggs or sperm in some of these animals with the attendant risk that they may breed and produce a human or a near human. And then another one that people don't often think about, but what about the, uh, the sheep that has a human face or the animal that looks like it has human hands? It's a morphological thing, but I, I think it also, there's some unease attendant in that sort of blurring of species boundaries. But certainly the, the cognition, human cognition and human reproduction are areas where we really should be steering away from that. And the problem yeah, yeah, is yeah, some of them. these people want to make these chimeras by starting with the early animal embryo, putting the human cells in. And at that juncture, the human cells could end up in any organ and tissue. And you could get that chimp with the human brain. The problem is that uh, we keep being told by the biotech community, well, let us have voluntary guidelines and we'll follow them. But voluntary guidelines are worth the paper they're written on. I mean, the only thing that really is sort of enforceable in this area right now are some federal funding restrictions and that kind of thing. But in, just example, CRISPR. Um, we have had now 
even though it was against the guidelines, genetically engineered babies born in China having used the CRISPR technology. Please tell us what CRISPR is and why, and whether you agree with me that this is the most powerful technology since the splitting of the atom, because it can change any human organism, animal organism, flora, fauna, or cell in a very efficient and easy way. And and CRISPR is simply an acronym for the type of enzyme that is used to make these sorts of genetic changes. Some would say it's simply the latest and most accurate. It's certainly that at this point. One of the problems people have had with genetic engineering or gene editing is the term of art now, is that before it had been pretty much shotgun. It was hard to make accurate changes if you were wanting to make some sort of genetic change. There are several other enzymes that have been used in the past years with some success, in fact, but CRISPR is much more accurate and allows people to make very precise cuts and changes in the genome such that you can make that swapping out a bad gene for a good gene, which is supposedly the good aspect of gene editing, but it could also allow you to make enhancements, to make genetic mutations and so on that would simply be unethical. And we have not had this debate as well. What we've had, frankly, is the National Academy of Sciences, the World Health Organization, basically saying, we really kind of want this. And so we're saying, don't do this for now, especially in terms of creating gene-edited babies. But we want to put together a registry, and you can just sort of sign in with us and let us know uh, what kind of experiments you're doing. There's no regulation. Right. And you're seeing the same kind of uh, arguments made for embryonic stem cell research. Oh, Uncle Charlie's Parkinson's can be cured, et cetera, et cetera. Now, with regard to CRISPR, there's a distinction to be made and uh, you know, between germline CRISPR, germline genetic engineering, and somatic cell genetic engineering, uh, which I think has an ethical consequence. Would you disp- describe the difference between those two? And we do need to be clear about that. So the what's called somatic gene editing or genetic engineering would be you do that sort of change on me, an already born individual, and you do not change my reproductive cells. Treating sickle cell anemia by doing genetic engineering instead of adult stem cells would be one ethical example. You only alter the genome of that individual. The germline or heritable genetic engineering does this on the germ cells or on an early embryo. You alter not just that individual, but it is, as the term says, heritable. It can be passed on to future generations. And let's be truthful here. We still don't really know what we're doing in terms of making these changes in our genome. We're, we're working on ourselves and changing our things. And, and the Chinese scientist and the little, girls that he genetically engineered are one of the best examples. He wanted to try and prevent them from ever being infected with the HIV virus. He had to hit two copies. We each have two copies of a particular gene, one from mom, one from dad. He only got it to work on one little girl. The other girl didn't, so she's still susceptible. Oh, and by the way, as people started to look at that particular gene, He also probably made them more susceptible to things like West Nile virus, maybe influenza. He probably shortened their lifespan and changed their cognition. So many things we don't know what we're doing. Yes, the hubris, uh, we really need to stay away from heritable types of genetic engineering. And if if those current babies grow up and have children, those children will have the same changes in their genes. And part of it is, as you said, we don't understand all of what will happen because genes don't just do one thing for the most part. I mean, genes do a lot of different things and and also interact with each other in ways that are so complex we don't understand it. 
They, they have multiple functions. And as you say, usually a gene doesn't act by itself. It works in concert like a symphony with other genes to make things work correctly. And if we start tweaking one little thing, there's so many unintended consequences that we cannot foresee. You can have a domino effect that, that does things that you would never have dreamed of doing. Exactly. And, and with somatic um, CRISPR, if there's a mistake made, it only impacts the person who was treated. It doesn't travel down the generations. That's right. And, and at this point, at least, it's focused on trying to, to treat diseases, genetic diseases, to alleviate suffering, which I think there is an ethical use for somatic genetic engineering. And again, I think this is important to point out. We are not Luddites. We are not saying do not engage in these incredibly powerful biotechnologies, but we are saying we have to figure out what is appropriate and ethical and moral to do with regard to furthering this this sector and the areas we should stay away from. Is that your understanding as well? That's exactly it. And the other thing that's been lacking in the debate is uh, it's just been the scientists talking to themselves and about what right. they want to do. They have not that's engaged the public. They have not really even engaged the ethicists. Yeah, it's very interesting from when we started in these issues and met each other during the embryonic stem cell fight, everything was in public and everybody was engaged. It was, I think, a very important societal discussion now, for whatever reason, and, and I'd like your opinion on why that might be, we don't have the same kind of media coverage. You don't have the same kind of public engagement. And basically, the scientists are saying, well, we can do what we want. Trust us. Why do you see the distinction between what happened back in 01, 02, 03, and today? Well, I, part of it, I think, is because we were so vocal back then trying to bring up these issues, and it did get media engagement, and it did actually result in stopping some of the abuses. I really think it had a good effect, and it brought out that there were ethical alternatives. And I think, sadly, some scientists learned from that that we shouldn't be quite so open in terms of what we're doing. We don't want people to know. We're the smart people. Just give us the money. Let us do the experiments. We'll come up with something good. There's also the fact that, frankly, a lot of scientists aren't interested in the ethical aspects and they don't want to broach those sorts of things, whether it's because they're uncomfortable with it or, as, as one scientist said, ethicists just say no and I want to do these experiments. So I'm not even going to bring it up. Yeah. And, and uh, this will be a subject that I, I write about a lot and I will probably address in a future episode, but we're in danger of a technocracy ruled by experts. And in a free and democratic society, that's not how it's supposed to work. Well, and you coined a term a number of years ago, scientism. It's not science. It's not objective inquiry with debate, with transparency. It, it's almost more of an ideology. Science holds ultimate truth. And so just let the, the scientific leaders bring forth their discoveries and otherwise just stay back in the, the great unwashed masses. And the problem is science can't tell us right from wrong. Science can tell us what is or what the facts we think, but science can't tell us, for example, whether it's, it's ethical or unethical to destroy a fetus. That is not something science can tell us. Science can tell us that the fetus has been destroyed. Science can tell us the, uh, let's say, scientific benefits they hope to attain by destroying the fetus, but they can't say whether it is right or wrong to destroy that fetus because that's not a scientific question. It's simply not the domain of science, which is why you need other people speaking into this debate. You need to broaden this out so everyone has a voice in terms of the policy directions that we take. That's right. And the problem also is you've got a tyranny called the People's Republic of China, which has no regard, in my opinion, for some of the things that we're dealing with. And I'm worried that uh, some scientists in the West, as well as what Chinese scientists are doing, 
are just what our friend William Hurlbut, who's the bioethicist from Stanford University, calls outsourcing ethics. Oh, well, I can't do it in the United States. I'll take some Chinese money and I'll head over to the lab in China. So how do we address that kind of issue? We really do need a, a global consortium to look at this. And we have nothing like that right now. But yeah, another example is the idea of three-parent embryos, supposedly trying to create these embryos that don't have a mitochondrial genetic problem. The U.S. actually made that illegal back in 2015. So what did the one doctor from New York State do? He went to Mexico, where there were no laws and regulations against it to make and gestate to birth one of these three-parent genetically engineered babies. We really need people coming together and recognizing this is a global problem. That There was a, a publication in the journal Nature, one of the two leading scientific journals in the world, a couple of years ago, soon after the Chinese scientist and his gene-edited girls were born, and that exploded into the news. And it flat out said, we need a moratorium. But what we found is what should be the leaders, National Academy of Science, the UK's Royal Society, World Health Organization, couldn't even bring themselves to say the M word, moratorium, but rather just let it go ahead. So we need other leaders to rise up, to speak the truth into the global culture and people to start looking at this from a global perspective. Otherwise, there's going to be a rush to the lowest common ethical denominator. And that will be a disaster for humanity. What do you say to people who say, well, gee, we better allow scientists in America or the U.S. to do it because they're going to do it in China and we'll fall behind? How do you respond to that kind of argument? Yeah, it simply becomes a matter of you, you don't base it on, hey, I want to be the first to do it. You base your policy on what would be the right thing to do, the ethical thing to do. As we've already discussed, it turns out the ethical science usually is what's better anyway, and usually is what helps humanity. So we need to talk people back away from that edge of I've got to rush ahead and I've got to be the first and we've got to beat them. You don't want to be the first to practice this unethical, lethal science. And as you said, we've proven, I mean, we had this fight back in the early 2000s, and it turned out that the ethical approach was actually the best scientific approach. And I think that provides a good model going forward. A little over 2 million people treated with adult stem cells for dozens of conditions, and uh, a handful and, and no positive reports for embryonic stem cells. The results right. speak for themselves. We're almost out of time here, but I do want to get into the issue of the COVID vaccines, which Charlotte Lozier has been very involved in. There are a lot of people, particularly people who are in the pro-life community, who are worried about taking the vaccines because of they don't want to uh, participate in any kind of medical uh, treatment, we'll say, or medical substance uh, that were ethically tainted by the use of fetal uh, cell um uh, research or development. You guys at, at, at Charlotte Lozier um, have been in, engaged in that question. And how what, what, what service have you offered to people who are concerned about that question to allow them to make these decisions uh, from an ethical perspective? Well, what we've got on our website is uh, a chart that we've put together. We update it every so often just so people can know of I think there are over 200 different vaccine candidates now around the world. But did they use any of these abortion-derived cells in the development, in the production, or even in the post-production testing for particular vaccines? It used to be there was only one way to make a viral vaccine, Wesley. You took a virus, you threw it into a dish of cells, you got a whole bunch of virus back out, you killed or weakened it, and that's what went into your arm. Well, now there are five different ways to make a viral vaccine. So we did the deep dive into the science to look at 
the different aspects as these different companies were coming forth and then put up the chart just so people would know. Our idea is we understand it's not a one-size-fits-all solution for everybody. Some people are more sensitive than others. They may be just looking at production, whereas others don't want to have any connection whatsoever. We're not going to tell you how to decide, but we want you to make that decision based on the latest, most accurate information. So if you go to our website, uh, you'll be able to find that chart. And that's a real service because, as you said, you're not telling people yes, no. You're letting people decide for themselves with accurate information because there's a lot of inaccurate information. Not only, you know, we've talked about the, quote, pro-science, which is, of course, not true side. But sometimes uh, I've seen people who are in the pro-life advocacy world who get way ahead of their skis and and put out uh, statements that are not factually accurate. Yeah, there's there's a lot of misinformation out there. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of distrust. Yeah. I understand that. And that's why you guys put together these charts. Exactly. And so, again, people can check. They can make their own decisions based on their own conscience, what's best for themselves, their family, their community. Well, we're out of time, but I'd like to ask one last question. What next for David Prentice? I mean, your life for the last 20 years has been not what you expected <laughs> when, uh, when this all began. Where are you heading next? Well, we're going to keep, uh, especially at the Charlotte Lozier Institute, looking at these questions. Uh, we've covered a lot of areas in this interview, but there are a lot of challenges looming. Uh, more trying to steer people to the ethical and successful science, trying to head off some of these uh, newer challenges with uh, artificial gestational containers and three-parent or gene-edited babies and, and so on, and just to try and inform people about what the real facts are in terms of the science. Well, I think it's an important public service. Even if someone disagrees with uh, the perspective of Charlotte Lozier, which is a pro-life perspective, it certainly provides accurate science and provides the kind of ethical uh, argumentation that I think we need if we're going to go forward into the biotechnological century. Our idea is you need to have the latest and most accurate information so you can make an informed decision for yourself. Well, Dave, thanks for being with me and uh, thanks for being part of Humanize. Thanks, Wesley. I enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. Discover all the good work of the Center on Human Exceptionalism by visiting discovery.org human. We can only do this work speaking on behalf of human life, human thriving, and our exceptional place in this world and our cosmos with your support. We invite you to make a one-time gift today and to consider starting a monthly gift to support the Center on Human Exceptionalism and this show. Wherever you're listening to Humanize, please take a moment to rate and review the show. You matter. Your actions matter. Be bold, be exceptional, and be back soon.